Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, uh, and welcome back to the New Books Network on Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Red of Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lou Hernandez about his new book entitled Bobby Maduro and the Cuban Sugar Kings, published by McFarlane in 2019. Lou, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Jorge. I'm pleased to be with you. Okay. Lou, before we start talking specifically about the book, uh, I want to get a little background on you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in writing about not just the Sugar King and not just about Cuban baseball, but just really Latin American baseball in general. Um, I was born in Cuba, Jorge, and um I was raised in New York, um, in Westchester County, which is uh, to the north of New York City. Yeah. Been living in South Florida uh, for the past thirty, I don't know, thirty-seven, thirty-eight years now. Um, as far as uh, my affinity for baseball, I mean, that started uh, uh, from my early childhood. Uh, you know, baseball was the game of my father, and uh, so he passed it on to me, and. Uh, I watched baseball um, on television all the time, and uh, I developed favorite players just like uh, any other kid uh, did. And, uh, you know, being an immigrant and everything, you know, I was always aware of my culture, and uh, it wasn't surprising that uh, it wasn't surprising that uh, I, uh, I drew I drew towards uh, Hispanic players, especially uh, during my youth. I remember uh, Tony Oliva. Uh, was a favorite player of mine. I was a Minnesota Twins fan because uh, Minnesota Twins had uh, had a great deal of Hispanic players during the 1960s. Right players. Well, I I remember I remember that uh, there was a, there was a book a few years ago on those early Minnesota Twin teams, and the joke in the uh, Minneapolis St. Paul area was that the TC on the Minnesota Twins. Uh, caps refer to not the twin cities but 20 cubans <laughs> yeah that's true and and that even goes back uh to their days prior before they relocated to uh to minnesota with uh, the washington senators that's a good one <laughs> yeah yeah the the book was called i think in the cool of the evening you might want to just take a peek at it somewhere down the line it's really really great stuff um okay uh now how do you come to write this book on Bobby Maduro and the Sugar Kings. How do you uh, uh, how do you come to uh, to learn about the Sugar Kings? And tell us a little bit about how you went about doing the research for the Sugar King book. Uh, sure. Um, the inspiration from the book came um, from really just uh, uh, providence, you might say. Um, in 2016. Uh, Saber, the Society of American Baseball Research, had their annual convention in Miami, uh, so I was able to attend uh, here in my backyard. And um, 
the first day of the convention, uh, I was introduced to Jorge Maduro, which is uh, Bobby Maduro's uh, oldest surviving son. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, Jorge, uh, not 10 seconds after I shook his hand and uh, broke you know, a handshake with him, I said to him, I want to write a book about your father. And uh, he looked at me, you know, sort of, you know, wearingly, you know, was, here's a guy I just met five, ten seconds ago, and he's already asking me, uh, he wants to write a book about his, about my father. And you know what the first uh, words out of his mouth was? He said, uh, how much is it going to cost me? <laughs> and then when I told him, he started warming up to the idea. And I've become very good friends with Jorge um, since that time, and uh, I always tease him about that every time uh, <laughs> Every time the subject subject comes up, so um, you know it was just uh, one of those lightning bolt uh, inspirations. Where I, I, I met the I met uh, the son of somebody that I knew about, and uh, who was a, a, a famous person and uh, a famous franchise involving my my particular culture that that even drew me more to the subject too. So uh, okay. that was the story. I always like uh, telling that uh, story. That, that, is, that is a great, that is a great story. Now, now let me ask you just, I guess some, uh, you know, some more technical stuff as far as we historians are concerned. D- does the family, has the family been able to maintain and to keep a lot of Bobby Maduro's materials? I mean, do they have those available or, or has that been sort of deposited uh University of Miami, Florida International, some some school like that. Um, from what I've gathered, and I've asked uh, you know the the children um, about this, um, they they have very little left over um, from from those days. Very little. Uh, Jorge has a box with with photographs, and that's about the extent of it. I mean, there's there's very little uh, material. Um, that the family kept. And I guess it's just one of those things. Uh, you, you just don't have that foresight uh, when you're living through, you know, these times or when we live through certain times, we just don't have the, the foresight to, to think that this is going to be something of uh, a valuable value in the future. And uh, so unfortunately uh, the answer to that is no, there's, there's not a lot uh, uh, by the Maduro family um, in their possession uh, regarding their father's uh, baseball teams. Okay, okay. Well, then let's let's begin to talk about some of the things that you write about in the book. Uh, in your introduction, in your prologue, and your and in chapter one, you provide readers with some background on Bobby. Tell us a little bit about his background, including his time in North Carolina, and how he comes to be involved with baseball in Cuba. Uh, sure. Uh, Robert Roberto Bobby Maduro was born in uh, Havana in 1916. He was the oldest of two children, uh, the other being a girl two years younger named Adriana. And uh, Bobby was the son of Solomon Maduro and Abigail Maduro. And Solomon and his wife um, emigrated to Cuba from Curaçao in 1914. Mm-hmm. Um and unlike the second half of the 20th century, when people fled Cuba in, in droves, uh, people actually emigrated to Cuba from all over the world uh, during the century's first uh, 50 years. Uh, mm-hmm. As proof of that, Chinatown district. Um, so Solomon Maduro, he was a businessman in Curacao, and he decided to invest when he emigrated to Cuba in sugar. And that was a, a wise investment uh, because sugar was one of the two biggest uh, 
exports on the island along with tobacco. Mm-hmm. And Solomon bought a, uh, a sugar mill um, outside of Havana. Sugar mills um, plant, cultivate, and process sugar for commercial distribution. And Solomon became a, a very wealthy man and a successful businessman um, as well. He ended up uh, branching out into multiple business enterprises, um, including insurance and finance. He, he settled his family of four in the, uh, in the Cuban capital. And uh, his affluence um, allowed him to send his son to study abroad. And uh, Bobby attended high school um, here in the United States um, in Asheville, North Carolina. How did, how did they decide upon that? Do you know? Well, uh, not, not in particular, but apparently um, this high school in Asheville, it was a preparatory high school. And apparently not only did it have uh, high graduation rates, but it had high matriculation rates to college. And uh, Bobby did attend university. He, uh, he went to Cornell uh, to study engineering. Unfortunately, he, he never got his degree. Bobby had to leave school following uh, the death of his uncle, uh, his father's brother, to come back to Cuba to help his father out um, and take over his uh, his uncle's uh, uh, sort of step into his uncle's uh, business footsteps there to help out his father. So, um, so Bobby never got uh, never got his degree uh, because of that uh, situation, but. I always contend, uh, looking back, that uh, sending Bobby to school in the United States was the best thing that uh, Solomon Maduro ever did his son. Uh, Bobby was able to to perfect his English uh, language skills here in the U.S., and, and that became a valuable asset for him um, later in his career and later in his life. Uh, Bobby was always able to um, to bridge that cultural divide that language often erects as a barrier between uh, between two countries. Yeah. And, and um, you know, his love of baseball, I, I think, just probably came about, um, you know, natural way, um, as, as any youth would be. Um, he just became a fan of the game, you know, based on his environment and, and such. Okay, okay. How did Bobby get involved in creating uh, the, grand, the Grand Stadium, the Grand Estadio del Cerro? De La Habana. Uh, what was the significance of this endeavor, of this facility, to Cuban baseball in general? Um, well, Bobby played baseball actually um, on social clubs team um, that he belonged to. There were various social clubs and at that time, and it was probably um, at one of these clubs that that Bobby met um, a gentleman named Miguelito Suarez. Um, who was a contemporary of Bobby. I think they were a year apart in age. Um, in 1945, this was. And uh, Miguelito Suarez's father, he was involved in uh, real estate. He was a big real estate broker in, in Havana. And uh, Bobby and, and Miguel Jr., they, they um, formed this partnership, um, and they decided to to build the stadium, which was a, a big undertaking. And as I said, the, the real estate end of it and, as far as securing the tract of land and the location that probably came from the, the Suarez end and Maduro's um, one of Maduro's in-laws was actually um, the architect of the stadium. So he provided that, that aspect of it. And the stadium took a little bit over a year to build it. It opened in uh, October. And when it did open, um, Grand Stadium became the first uh, million-dollar sports complex uh, built in Latin America. 
Mm. I think the I think the final price tag was one point one million. But um, when the stadium opened, it was the first sports complex in Latin America that carried a uh, seven figure price tag. That's that's an that's an astonishing uh, 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 statement. So so. How was the stadium perceived, obviously not just in Cuba, but you know, in other parts of Latin America where, where baseball predominated? Yeah, well, it was uh, for its time, obviously, a state-of-the-art um, facility. Um, uh, the stadium became the main venue for the uh, Cuban Winter League, which previously held their games at uh, Tropical Park which was located really um, farther away from the commercial areas of the city. Uh, Grant Stadium was located or is located in uh, South Central Havana, a Cerro dis- District. That's where it gets its name, C-E-R-R-O District. Um, and closer to the hotels and the tourist areas. So um, it had a, uh, a much better location um, for the people, for the city, for attendance. And, um, you know, as testament to the to the people who built it today, more than seven decades later, um, Grand Stadium, although it's not called that anymore, it still remains the principal venue for baseball in Cuba. More than seven decades after it was built, I mean, I think that's that's its biggest testament uh, to the people who built it. Well, and and also the the testament can also be the fact that even after sixty plus years of uh, the. Uh, the communist dictatorship, the, the stadium is still is still standing. Right, right. I know uh, Major League Baseball gave it uh, gave it some help in 2016 um, when President Obama visited uh, uh, Major League Baseball. I think uh, donated uh, uh, money to paint the stadium, and they resotted the uh, the infield, and, and they 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 contributed over a million dollars. Um, prior to the Tampa Bay Rays going down there to play that exhibition game. Okay, okay. Um, now, Bobby also becomes, you know, we've got the stadium now. Bobby becomes involved with um, the, the National Association of Professional Baseball Leagues. Tell us a little bit about that, and how does this help to bring about La Serie del Caribe, the, 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 Ser- the Caribbean series? Um, Bobby was part of a uh, contingent of uh, baseball executives that met um, at the annual National Association of Professional Baseball Leagues um, in Miami in 1947. The convention was held in Miami that year at the uh, McAllister Hotel in downtown Miami, as a matter of fact. And the significance of that meeting was that it marked the first time or the beginning, actually, of Latin American baseball's involvement uh, with organized baseball in the United States. Um, that very year, 1947, Cuba became the first country to join organized baseball as, as what was called an unclassified affiliate. Mm-hmm. And, and from that meeting, as you mentioned, also sprang uh, the blueprint agreement for the start of a championship series involving the champions of several Latin American winter leagues. And that championship series uh, became known as the Caribbean series. Um, That series was actually formalized. uh, The final agreement was formalized in Havana in April of 1948. And the series inaugurated less than a year later in February, 1949 in Havana. Um, The original series involved uh, the champions pitting the champions of the four uh, of four Latin American playing countries, uh, Cuba, 
Puerto Rico, Panama, and Venezuela. The champions of those winter leagues would play each other in a, a double round robin tournament. Um, each team would play the other twice, and uh, the team with the uh, the best record at the end of the tournament uh, would be crowned uh, champion. And uh, all this all this hard hit took place in the wake of the 1946 player raids um, from from Jorge Pascal and the Mexican League. Um, Pascal was a dynamic figure uh, for a few years in the uh, Mexican League. And I think organized baseball um, came to realize that that baseball was expanding and growing in Latin America. It was it was better to be allies with Caribbean baseball than enemies or frenemies, which they had become at that time uh, because of Pascal. Um, and it, and it turned out to be a good strategy, a great strategy, you might even say, because by signing up for leagues, um, organized baseball uh, cut off a vital player pipeline to the Mexican League. Um, it should be noted that the Mexican League, unlike the winter leagues of the Caribbean, uh, the Mexican League is a summer league. So, mm-hmm. man, so many of the top players of, uh, of the winter leagues in, in Latin America they would, uh, or at least the better players, they would actually go to, to Mexico to play in the summer and then play in their home countries in the winter. So they had, they had you know, baseball uh, uh, income year-round. And uh, one of the agreements of organized baseball um, with, uh, with the Winter Leagues was that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't fraternize with uh, what they called rogue leagues, uh, which uh, the Mexican League was at the time. Right. So, right. so, so they cut off the player pipeline with the Mexican League. Um, uh, there was also a couple of other things involved. Uh, the Mexican peso really devaluated at the time. Um, the attendance didn't to to expectation, and uh, all these things combined to really um, to really uh, push back uh, Jorge Pascal's uh, threat uh, to the reserve clause of Major League Baseball. Because Pascal, I don't know if I mentioned, he started signing. U.S. players to multi-year contracts. Right, um, right. But uh, the happy conclusion is that uh, the Mexican League eventually uh, joined organized baseball in uh, 1955. And and Bobby, and so so Bobby Maduro was involved or was very prominent in regards to making the bringing helping to bring about this this uh, this type of agreement between uh, b- between these Caribbean teams and and the. Uh, and, and organized baseball. So in other words, he helped to smooth out that relationship. Yeah, he was part of uh, 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 the architect, one of the architects, you might say, as far as uh, as far as getting everything together and, uh, and uh, you know, coming. But not only Cuba joining organized baseball, but also the, the Caribbean series. Okay, okay. Now, it, obviously the majority of your, of your book is about the Sugar Kings, but Bobby... Maduro owned another team before the Sugar King, and those were the uh, Cienfuego Elefantes. Uh, tell us a little bit about his role as team owner of Cienfuegos and eventually how he goes from owning Cienfuegos to eventually owning the Sugar Kings. Um, yeah, Bobby became involved in team ownership for the first time um, in 1949. Or, you know, it, it might be better said um, that he was involved in team leadership uh, because um, he and two other partners became the acting heads 
of the San Fuegos Elephants. Um, they were responsible for all of the club operations, but they didn't actually have ownership rights. They signed a five-year agreement with the owners of San Fuegos. Uh, San Fuegos was one of the four uh, teams of the Cuban Winter League. Mm-hmm. And um, so when that five-year association um, ended in 1953, um, Bobby actually bought outright the Havana Cubans. Um, I think it was in May of 53. Okay. And that was an outright purchase, uh, ownership purchase. Um, the Havana Cubans at the time were owned by uh, Clark Griffith and uh, Joe Cambria, who was a uh, a well-known Latin American scout. Um, right. The Havana Cubans played in the Florida International League, which which was a Class C league and then later upgraded to Class B. And uh, all of the teams were based in Florida, which was kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so the, the Cubans, actually, the Havana Cubans were a very successful team under Clark Griffith. They won uh, five pennants in a row um, in the late 1940s uh, when Bobby actually purchased the franchise uh, they had fallen out of hard times. Uh, they had, the team had lost most of its better and more popular players uh, to higher leagues and even the majors. Um, many of the Havana Cuban players ended up playing with the Washington Senators. Um, so, yeah, Bobby sort of cut his teeth on team ownership uh, with Cienfuegos, um, with two other partners. But his actual um, outright ownership uh, came with the Havana Cubans uh, after the Cienfuegos uh, Association. And then how does he move? How does he then move on to and why does he move on to the Sugar Kings? Um, Well, he purchased the Sugar Kings uh, with a higher purpose in mind. Um, And uh, that happened at the end of of the 1953 season. Um, Yeah. Bobby uh, folded the Havana Cubans to to reinvent them um, as a bigger and and better franchise in a bigger and better league. And uh, that bigger and better franchise turned out to be the Cuban Sugar Kings. And uh, the bigger and better league was the International League. Um, The Cubans were born in 1954. And with the addition of the Sugar Kings, the, the International League really, really lived up to its name uh, with franchises in three different countries. Right. Uh, they had uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and Montreal Royals were, were already in the league. And uh, so that, that's, how that, uh, that, that's how that came about. And, and, and of course, the, the International League was, it was a trip, was AAA. AAA level circuit, correct. Right. And, and, and what was the... Uh, what was the uh, the 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 slogan of the of the Sugar Kings in regards to them being a Triple A team? Why don't you share uh, that with us? Yeah, um, Bobby's uh, Maduro's ultimate goal for the Sugar Kings was for them to become a uh, a major league guys. Uh, in fact, the team, uh, as you mentioned, had a slogan that translated to uh, "One more step, and we arrive." Uh, the International League was a triple-A circuit, as you said, and the one more step in the slogan referred to the major leagues. As we all know, the next step up after triple-A uh, right. is the big leagues. Right. Let me let me ask you to just sort of veer off for just a second regarding, you know, the, the purchasing of the team, the ownership of the team. On page 32, you discuss an issue of alleged racial intolerance in 1953 you, you cite that that was mentioned in Jet Magazine. 
tell us a little bit about that situation. And, and because, I mean, Cuba was always regarded as this place where uh, African-American players, you know, guys from the Negro Leagues could go down uh, to Cuba and they were treated, you know, like royalty. They were treated uh, in a much better way than they were treated here in the United States. Tell us a little bit about that situation. Um, right. Uh, the quote you're referring to, I guess, uh, was something Maduro said to the effect that uh, fans won't come out to see Negro players. Right. I think that, that was, um, I guess, uh, that made what we would call today a full news cycle around the media of the day. And, that, and as you mentioned, Jet Magazine, which was a prominent black periodical at the time, called Maduro out on that. And you know, I, I think we have to remember, Jorge, that the, that the Florida International League um, did not integrate um, until 1952. Um, so Jet was talking about the 1953 uh, Havana Cubans. And you might want to put another spin on it, saying that, you know, one year after integration, um, there was enough black players or, or men of color on the team that uh, that statement could be even made. I think uh, the, the 53 Havana Cubans had six uh, players of color on their team. So just a year after integration to have six players, uh, six black players on the team, I think that would be maybe a, a more positive uh, spin on, on what he said. You know, yeah. of course, of course, it's uh, it's archaic thinking and, and, and we've moved away from that, uh, thankfully. But that type of archaic thinking was present uh, in many major and, and minor league front offices at the time. In fact, you know, I remember in the early 80s, Howie Hack, who was a uh, talking about uh, famous scouts with Cambria. Howie Hack was a, another famous Latin American scout. Um, he's responsible uh, for bringing Roberto Clemente uh, to um, to the Pittsburgh Pirates attention. And, and he made, you know, basically a verbatim uh, statement that uh, about uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates, why the attendance was, was so bad. And we all know that the Pirates of the 70s were a very progressive team and, and they won a, a world championship in 1979. So right. you just have to take things in, in, the, in the context uh, of the times. Um, but again, if you put that other spin on it, like I, I said, as far as um, uh, the international of uh, the Florida International League, um, integrating in 52 and then in 53, uh, the, the Havana Cubans had six black players on the team. You know, I think that's a, that's a positive spin. And, and the last thing I'll say about it is when, when Maduro became owner of the, of the sugar Kings from its inception, uh, the team makeup was very diverse. There were men of color who played for the sugar Kings from all over, uh, Latin America, including North American blacks. And, um, when it came to helping players, um, as Maduro did all throughout his uh, career and life, um, he proved to be uh, colorblind when it came to that aspect of the player. And, and, and you know, and you know what, Lou, I want to thank you for for taking the time to to discuss that because, given the times that we live in, you know, I, I think it's imperative for for people to hear and to sort of think about the importance of historical context. Uh, you can't simply apply uh, 2020 standards to someone who is speaking necessarily, you know, necessarily spe uh, speaking back in in the 1950s, and and I think that that 
is a very balanced way to uh, to look at Bobby Maduro and sort of his relationship with African American or Latino you know, play, players of color. So I, I think that the Sugar Kings are actually a, a very good model for people to, to sort of look at and to think about in that regard, given the current times that we live in. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Uh, everything has to be taken into historical context and we shouldn't, you know, just have knee jerk reactions. Yeah. Well, let me let's move on to a, another in chapter four. You discuss the development of Los Cubanitos. Um, now, I remember that term from when I was a little kid in in uh, in Miami uh, in the uh, in the uh, late, very late 1960s, very early 1970s. And Nora was a follow up to what Bobby developed in Cuba. What were the Cubanitos? What was the purpose of Los Cubanitos uh, back back in the uh, back on the island? Um, Los Cubanitos were a, a youth league organization that uh, Bobby Maduro started for for youngsters to be able to play baseball on an organized level. Um, it was the equivalent, really, of our little leagues here. Um, and at its height, it reached uh, 5,000 kids playing under the organization, including uh, many underprivileged children. And uh, not only did it help build camaraderie and uh, in a positive way, um, uh, it also helped um, it also helped kids get kids out of the house and off the streets uh, in a structured environment, which... Uh, we all know is very important for youthful development. Um, mm-hmm. The players, they all had to adhere to a, to a code of conduct off the field. Uh, they all had to attend school for one thing or they could not play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, league, uh, the league had its own commissioner and uh, it actually made, it made such an impact that it was continued in Miami in the 1960s and 70s by a man named Emilio Cabrera who was a former manager in the Cuban Winter League. And over the past decade or more, um, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm pleased to say I've become good friends with Emilio's uh, daughter, Barbara Cabrera, and, uh, and, his, and her husband, Sam, Sam, who happen, Sam Zigner, who happens to uh, be the co-chair of Sabres South Chapter. Okay. Um, and a final note on, on Los Cubanitos, there's actually, you might you might want to check this out, Jorge, there's actually an active website that you can visit, uh, and it'll give you background and photos on, on, on the Cubanitos when they were active in Miami during that period. Um, I believe it was started by a, a former player, uh, a gentleman named Emilio Perez. And the website, if I could say it, is uh, sure. Los, Los Cubanitos, the number one, dot blogspot.com los cubanitos l-o-s-c-u-b-a-n-i-t-o-s the number one dot blogspot b-l-o-g-s-p-o-t dot com and there's plenty of photos there and reminiscences from people uh who are part of that organization and I will definitely look that up. Uh, that will that will definitely bring back some uh, very wonderful memories uh, of my of my childhood in Miami. So thank you so much for for sharing that. Um, let's move on. I think really to the meat of the book, which is chapter starting in chapter five, and I've got a couple questions for you on that. Um, 
Chapter 5 discusses how the Sugar Kings and Maduro dealt with the political turmoil as, unfortunately, the Castro Revolution moved forward. Uh, please give us a sense of what that was like for Bobby and the team. Um, yeah, the, the Cuban Revolution triumphed on January 1st, 1959, and the Sugar Kings began their sixth season. Um, I think I mentioned they started, they inaugurated in 1954, and the Sugar Kings started their sixth season four months later. Um, uh, the leader of, of that Cuban Revolution was Fidel Castro, who had become um, internationally known thanks to a series of articles that appeared in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Cuba had previously been under the authoritarian control of Fulgencio uh, Batista, who had taken over the island in a bloodless coup uh, in 1952. And Bobby Maduro, I should, I should stress, always felt that politics and sports uh, should be kept separate. And I think history has shown us that uh, that is not always possible or practical. Um, and even though Maduro stressed keeping uh, baseball and politics separate, um, I think he, he may have been blind uh, by the political happenings occurring around him from, from, his, from his desire to keep uh, his franchise viable in order um, to continue his ultimate dream uh, of making the Sugar Kings the first uh, international franchise um, in the major leagues. And, and, and you really can't fault him for that. Um, he, was, he was duped, certainly, like many, many, many other Cubans. And um, as far as what it was like for Bobby and the team, well, the, the changing government was portrayed as good. It was viewed, it was viewed with a great deal of optimism. Uh, life could go back to normal, so to speak, and and that would include sports, and uh, int- attendance would increase at the sporting events and baseball, you know, in particular. Castro himself was portrayed as a baseball lover and even a former amateur player with uh, major league designs. And, um, you know, these myths have been dispelled over the years, of course. Sure. Um, but, but, you know, in actuality, Bobby Maduro um, unwittingly uh, played a role in, in, in elevating Castro as a benefactor for Cuban baseball, which he clearly was not. Uh, Castro, in fact, shrewdly... Uh, used baseball to further project his image on the international stage, and, and he continued to do so for, for decades to come. Right, right. Um, tell us a little bit about that 59, that 59 season where you have the, uh, an unlikely champion march uh, uh, to an unlikely championship as the dictatorship establishes itself. Right. Um, in 1959, Castro was still consolidating power. Um, and under that backdrop, the, the Sugar Kings started their season uh, kind of sluggishly, as a matter of fact. But the team uh, really came on strong in the second half of the year. And uh, they played well enough to finish third in the league, which qualified them uh, for postseason play. Um, the International League at that time, the top four teams made, a, made the playoffs. Uh, the pennant winner would play the fourth place team and then the second and third seeded teams would play each other in the best four out of seven series to crown an eventual champion. And the Sugar Kings managed by Preston Gomez, they won both of their series and were crowned uh, the champions of the, uh, the international league. And uh, at that time, the, the champion of the international league faced uh, the champion of the American association, mm-hmm. which was 
which was the other triple a circuit in the minor leagues at the time um and the sugar kings uh ended up winning a, a thrilling seven game series against the minneapolis managed by uh gene mock um and uh the seventh game uh being played in bobby maduro stadium and the, the team won on a walk-off hit in the, in the bottom of the ninth inning so you can't get uh uh, more th- much more thrilling than that. Uh, yeah, yeah. First two games were played in Minnesota, as a matter of fact, but the weather started to turn inclement, so they decided to just move the, the remainder of the series to Havana, and the rest of the games were played there. Um, Castro was present at the games. Uh, he wanted to get his visibility there um, sure. uh, exposed. There was a great uh, also military presence uh, with uh, – with uh, you know, army people, uh, uh, the bearded ones with uh, with machine guns and uh, armed uh, armed weapons, and uh, I think uh, one of my favorite quotes about the series came from one of the writers in in Minnesota who said uh, that uh, this had to be the first time a championship series held where the uh, machine guns in the stands outnumbered the bats in the bat rack in the dugout. Uh, <laughs> that was, a, that was a, a great quote. I thought a nice quip. Um, as far as describing the uh, the series itself in Havana, and and one of one of the uh, the things that that you did in in these chapters that I also thought was really good is that you you sort of also give you give a certain amount of background regarding how the league itself is thinking about how are we going to deal with this with this turmoil in the uh, uh, with the Sugar Kings and in Cuba. Uh, are we going to have our teams going into Havana? What's the situation like uh, in, in, in the city and in the country itself? Right. Well, yeah, that, that 1959 season, that was the, the apex of the team. That, that was their, uh, their glory, their championship glory. Um, yeah, I, I know there was, uh, I, I think the league really um, uh, guided by uh, by the United States government and and what uh, what was going on there as far as relations with uh, with Cuba and, and and things like that, but um, uh, that all came about. I guess uh, if you want me to go into the 1960 season, yeah, um, yeah. yeah 1960 Castro was starting uh, to show his communist stripes, as uh, you alluded to. He started confiscating U.S. and and Cuban owned properties. Um, Castro was attacking the United States on TV and radio daily. He was fomenting, uh, you know, anti-American sentiment. And it, and it grew to, to such a level that um, the owners of the other franchises in the, in the International League um, did not want to send their, their teams to play in Cuba. They were, they were afraid for the safety of, the, of their players. Um, and, and so the, the, the president of the International League decided uh, midseason, Actually, moved the Sugar Kings out of Cuba in July '60. He, he relocated the team. Uh, this is Shaughnessy, Frank Shaughnessy, who was the president of the league. He relocated the team uh, to Jersey City in, in July of 1960, where the the team played out the season out of contention, out of playoff contention. And um, you know, the funny thing is that uh, they continued wearing the same Sugar Kings uniform their first year in, in Jersey. All they did was stick a patch on the front of their chest where Cubans was scripted, and now it, it said Jersey City or Jerseys, which was the nickname of the team. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think the team ended up having to alter their caps, obviously. But uh, as far as the, the uniform, it practically stayed the same except for that, for the patches on the front of their jersey. Um, the team spent uh, the 1961 season in New Jersey as well. It, it didn't draw well. And um, by that time, uh, Maduro was out of Cuba in 1962. Uh, he decided to, to move the team to Jacksonville, Florida. And the, how he did that was actually selling the team. And he did that out of necessity. Um, Maduro sold the team to a local Jacksonville, Florida uh, businessman and uh, the team became the Jacksonville Suns, uh, still in the International League. And Bobby Maduro was able to stay on as um, general manager of the team for the first few years. And actually, in 1962, the uh, Jacksonville Suns won the, uh, the pennant of the International League, and they won another pennant a couple of years. So they won two pennants uh, while Maduro was in the front office as general manager. But, you know, by this time, uh, the team had no, no resemblance to the, uh, to the Cuban Sugar Kings of the past. Okay, okay. And, and now you've gotten us to the point where Bobby has sold the team. Um, but I think even more importantly, what you do is you give – and believe me, this was, this was very, very touching for me because, you know, m- my family also immigrated from Cuba, so I, I know exactly – what you're talking about here and, 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 and have a sense of what Bobby and his family went through. You move towards the end of the work. You give us a sense of how Bobby and his family rebuilt their lives in the United States. Tell us a little bit about how they went about reconstructing as best they could their existence in a new country. Uh, right. Well, Bobby went on uh, to become the quintessential immigrant story, um, like so many other nationalities in our country. Um, his children uh, thrived in their new environment, and they all went on to become you know, established citizens and professionals. Um, Bobby rebuilt his life, as you said, uh, which had to be um, especially difficult for him because he was not only involved in baseball, he was also a very successful businessman in Cuba. Mm-hmm. was involved in, in uh, transportation business uh, with buses and agriculture involving uh, cattle. Um, so he was a multimillionaire actually in his own right, as was his father, uh, who, who also lost everything. Both Bobby and his father lost everything, the stadium, their homes. Um, I should mention Bobby um, had married uh, a young lady named Isolina Fernandez in 1940. And that union produced uh, eight children, and four of those children uh, survive to this day, um, although they're not children, obviously, anymore. Sure. Um, and uh, I was able to interview all four of the, of the children, um, and that was a, an enjoyable aspect of, of the book because um, speaking with them helped uh, really humanize the subject of my biography. They were able to to provide insights, uh, you know, in a special way that uh, other people couldn't uh, on, a, on a personal level. Um, I also got to interview uh, Bobby Maduro's grandson, Jorge Jr., who was very active in youth baseball in Miami. Uh, he is he has established a, a nonprofit organization that bears the actual Cuban Sugar King's name. So uh, that third generation is... Uh, is obviously keeping the Maduro uh, legacy alive here in South Florida. Uh, Bobby, I should mention, remarried later in life. Um, his his wife, unfortunately, 
passed away in 1974 and Bobby remarried and uh, Bobby himself uh, passed away in Miami in 1986 at the age of 70. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess really the, the most important thing that we can do now is just sort of try to summarize Bobby Maduro and the Sugar Kings, but, but primarily Bobby, obviously, uh, within the context of the Latino presence in Major League Baseball or just professional baseball in general. Um, what is Bobby's significance to the sport, do you think? Um, yeah, I think uh, the significant thing is that Bobby, I think, was able to see that uh, Latin American baseball was going to be a big component of the game in the United States. I think, uh, to some respect, he even foresaw the the globalization baseball has achieved in the 21st century. Um, after Maduro left Jacksonville, he went to work um, in Major League Baseball under the administrations of uh, commissioners William Eckert and uh, Bowie Kuhn in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, he served as a Latin American liaison to to all the baseball playing countries of uh, the Caribbean Basin, uh, the winter leagues and, and amateur baseball included. And um, in the late 1970s, he, he started a, uh, a league of his own um, called the Inter-American Baseball League, uh, which was not uh, a success, but had as one, has, as one of its goals uh, uh, a way of showcasing Latin American baseball talent uh, to the major leagues, uh, a stepping stone, so to speak, for Hispanic players that didn't always, you know, get uh, get enough uh, get enough scouting or get a, enough of a look see uh, to warrant uh, major league attention. Um, it was an ambitious undertaking, um, and an, I think it was really reflective of Maduro's uh, love of the game and, and his love of uh, his Hispanic culture. Um, was, that, that, was that the league that uh, featured a team called the Miami Amigos? Is that, uh, is that correct? That's the one. That, uh, the league had six teams. Uh, one was based in Bobby's adopted hometown of Miami that you mentioned, and five other teams where we're based in uh, the Caribbean Basin. Uh, there was two teams actually in, in Venezuela, one in the capital of Caracas and the other in Maracaibo. Uh, there was a team in Panama, the capital there, and the capitals of San Juan in Puerto Rico and uh, the Dominican Republic. Um, so um, I think the, the, the league had its problems, although it was a AAA circuit. I mean, that was one thing that it had going for it. It failed to get um, major league affiliations. If it could have just gotten, you know, affiliations from six major league teams to, to support it with players and things, I think it might have had a, a different, uh, a, a different, uh, you know, uh, end result. Um, the, the league also ran into problems logistically with players, uh, documents not being in order, traveling from country to country with visa things and, and things like that. So. As I said, it was an ambitious undertaking, uh, and it was you know its failure should not be reflected upon Maduro. It should really be reflected that Maduro was trying to do positive uh, for Latin American baseball. Um, you know, so from his building of the stadium back in the in the nineteen forties uh, to his ownership of different franchises. Um, to his uh, time in, in, in Major League Baseball, working you know directly for the commissioners of baseball, promoting Latin American baseball, and 
and to his final undertaking with the Inter-American Baseball League. I don't know if I mentioned that was the name of the league. Right. Um, you know, no one, no one did more for Latin American baseball during the decade of the 1940s, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s uh, than Bobby Maduro. And, and that's something significant that a lot of people should know. Okay, okay. Um, Lou, is, is there any topic that we have not covered regarding Bobby or the Sugar Kings that, that you wanted to discuss that, that I've not asked you about? Um, you mentioned, uh, Jorge, that the Cuban Sugar Kings of the 1950s uh, helped brand Caribbean baseball in the eyes of the North American baseball fan for the first time. Um, you know, exposing that North American fan to the unique Latin American style of play where the players are very expressive and they wear their emotions, their hearts on their sleeves. That was very unique at that time. Um, and not surprisingly, the, the Sugar Kings were a very popular road team um, because of that. Um, uh, so um, that's one thing. And I, I think my biggest takeaway uh, from writing this book and and everything I've read and studied about the era is, is I am certain um, that it, had it not been for the Cuban Revolution, the first international franchise in the major leagues uh, would not have been the Montreal Expos. Right. The, the first international franchise in the major leagues would have been the Cuban Revolution. Yeah. And, and, and it's a shame, you know, I, and I have to say just sort of on a personal note, uh, I remember my dad uh, always talking about the Sugar Kings and always, oh, really? talking about, always talking about the issue of, you know, we would, we would have been in, in the major leagues. It would not have been the Expos. It would have been a franchise. It would have been a franchise in Havana. Uh, uh, before Fran there would have been a major league franchise in Canada. So th this has really been a wonderful, wonderful uh, trip down memory lane. Plus it's a very, very informative uh, book. Um, so thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, believe it or not, Lou, we've been talking for about 50 minutes <laughs> and I I've taken up quite a bit of your time. So I, I want to just thank you for uh for for taking time to visit with me bobby maduro and the cuban uh, cuban sugar kings is an excellent book if you have any interest at all in in the story of latin american baseball latino participation in baseball this is a superb book to read so uh, i really want to thank you and and i really enjoyed spending some time with you you're welcome my pleasure okay